Philippians, starting in verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for you to feel this way about, uh, right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you, all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is with my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve of what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Well, good morning. I'm happy to be with you here this morning. I'm going to address the elephant in the room. I'm not Justin, um, as evidenced by the beard. Yeah, and and I'm not Brandon either, as evidenced by the beard as well. Uh, but I, again, I'm I'm happy to be with you. I'm Ethan. I'm the student pastor here. I think actually a year to this day. Um, so, yeah, uh, uh, I've more than enjoyed, thank you. Yeah, I've more than enjoyed my time with you, and, and um, I still hope for uh, more days in advance as well. So, um, on a slightly more serious note, uh, my wife and I are incredibly grateful for uh, your support. Uh, you guys are part of the reason why she's even here today to hear me, uh, just in recovery from surgery and, and such, and support with del- delicious delicious meals that you've been sending us. So for that too, I just wanted to pause and say we are so grateful uh, for your support, even not just throughout this year, but this last week. So thank you. Um, I'll be uh, continuing our series in Philippians this morning. And, and with that, I, um, I, I want to take us to Philippians verse 3. Uh, we'll be going from there to verse 11. Gold. Since the beginning of written human history, mankind has thirst after gold. This precious metal has started wars. This precious metal has backed whole economies of world powers. Gold is even worn in this very room today that evidences commitment and love and personal value. When news of its discovery in the New World broke forth, European powers alike fled uh, in mass droves of settlers and explorers just in hopes of finding this gold. One such English settlement was actually Jamestown. You may remember it, Captain John Smith, the Pocahontas story. Yeah, so I did some research and found that one of the uh, many, many troubles that they had was actually in their search for gold and getting to know the Padawamic Indians. They noticed that some of the shores near their villages shone with a a golden hue, thinking that there was gold in the sand. 
And so what did they do? Well, they did like any smart person should do and trade nearly all of your winter supplies in effort to load as much of that on the ships that you came in to send it back to England. 1,100 tons of sand was shipped back to England. Well, much to their disappointment, when they started unloading shipment after shipment of not gold, but iron pyrite, fool's gold, they found out that what they had shipped was virtually worthless. And they had traded their, of course, needed winter supplies. They actually used some of that iron pyrite for uh, to paving the kind of back alleyways with gravel. And uh, I think that they did find their streets of gold, but not as they had hoped. Gold, however, is not the only thing in our society that can often be confused with a counterfeit. In today's culture of self-help books and Oprah, and even some of the kind of Christian versions of that, uh, there's much confusion in the American church on what actually joy is, and how do you get joy. Of course, on the shelves of Barnes and Nobles, uh, joy has many different names, happiness, freedom, inner peace, the right to choose, self-determination. All of these will promise that you will be happy if you just know the secret, a book title in and of itself. In America alone, trillions upon trillions of dollars every year are spent in search of happiness or joy, and Christians among them join in to find it, whether it be in entertainment, whether it be in travel, whether it be in cars, fitness, meditation, what have you. Nevertheless, America is continuing to find itself depressed and all the more anxious. I believe if we take today's passage seriously, we will actually ask ourselves an honest question. Are we pursuing a counterfeit joy? So how do we tell the difference? By studying the real thing. And I think that in our passage today, we actually see a clear-cut example of what joy is, evidenced in Paul. We find Paul, as we covered last week, who is in prison, like awaiting trial. Paul is at a grim low point. And not only that, he has had a helper who's been so faithful in helping him and supporting him, but he's actually sending this helper home because his helper has got too sick to even support him. So he's sending him back to Philippi with this letter that we call Philippians. And in that, uh, everyone who probably has heard of Paul's arrest has probably expected the worst. He is one of the main Christian leaders of the day. Everyone looks up to him, and he is in prison. It doesn't look like he will make it. But not if you know Paul. Not if you read this letter. We don't find a man who's moping at all. In fact, we find quite the opposite. He is a brilliant light in a dark prison cell. So, how on earth can he be joyful in a situation like this? His life is at stake. So, for you note takers, I'm going to give kind of three points that are going to serve as our roadmap today. Uh, Paul's going to give us an example, and I think his example challenges us. First, to cultivate joy that runs upward and outward, not inward. I'll repeat that. Cultivate joy that runs outward and uh, upward, not inward. Secondly, joy that is bound to the body of Christ, not circumstance. 
It's joy that is bound to the body of Christ, not circumstance. And finally, three, joy that increasingly bears good fruit. That's joy that increasingly bears good fruit. So in verses three and four, three and four is where we will start. Um, here, we actually kept a glimpse of Paul's example right off the bat and his challenge to cultivate joy that goes upward and outward, not inward. He begins by saying, I thank God in all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for making my prayer with joy. Let me ask you this. Where is Paul's mind right now? Right off the beginning of the letter. It goes outward. He does not start by talking about himself. He doesn't sit there and play the woe is me card. Can you please send more help? There is no plead. It's only thanksgiving. What he does, right off the bat, shares what God given him in his heart. He lets them not only know that he thinks about them, but that he thinks about them continually. And not only when he does that, he prays, and he prays, and he prays. His mind is outward towards his brethren, who are close friends, and yes, his joy overflows even from the dark of a prison cell. Now, I want us to notice to whom his heart goes out to in Philippi. Did you catch it? Those who sent him a helper in prison? Some, maybe, but not exactly. Those who supported him financially in his missionary efforts? Again, not not explicitly stated, maybe. Those whom he personally taught? No, no. It's all. Everyone, every believer in Philippi, that's who his heart goes out to. That's who he is praying for. And we know this because three times he mentions the word all. And if you, see the, if you read the Greek, you actually understand that this is a specific word meant to highlight all. It's not looped in with other grammar. This means that he is intentionally saying again and again and again, all, all of you I am praying for. Yes, this includes the ones that supported him, the ones that he taught, and, and also the ones that really like Paul and been praying for him while he's been in prison. But it also includes those that are harder to get along with. Those Christians who, who uh, well, maybe the best title for them is the crazy uncles. Uh, I think, too, he's also praying for those the ones that are causing problems, well, the ones that might be even be in the midst of stirring up division, thinking maybe I can even replace Paul as a leader in this community. Paul's heart goes out to all. Does this strike you as strange? Verse 5 tells us exactly why, and it's because of the partnership in the gospel that he has with the Philippian church. This word partnership is really interesting. This is the last time I'll mention Greek, I swear. Uh, but it's a word worth uh, dwelling on. The Greek word is koinonia. We use it here and we see it as partnership. Elsewhere it's translated as fellowship, uh, sometimes association to or even sharing. Um, it's one of those words that in English, there's a lot of different stabs that trying to get to its meaning. Uh, and it has several meanings in Greek, but it's so rich and it's so uh, powerful because it pictures what, what the unity of the early church had. 
So he uses that word here to describe his relationship to the Philippians. So in secular Greek, it actually stands for a union between worshipers and their God. This is a a divine connection, a divine commitment, a divine fellowship. Uh, Elsewhere, too, it communicates an idea of a group of people that are on mission together. They have a purpose, a singular purpose. This is far past waving at someone in the foyer and saying, hey, brother, a lot more tighter than that. Paul is claiming this, even though he's miles and miles apart, and this koinonia, this fellowship, causes him to pray and to think, to give thanks and to have joy. So what's it centered around specifically? Because even in today, we have different groups that unify themselves on various purposes, whether it be a country club membership or a membership to a gym, which a lot of people sign up for and never use as much as they should or want. Um, What are they unified around? What is Paul unified around? What is his level of commitment? Specifically, it's, it's the gospel. And not only that, but it's the mission itself, the gospel mission to save believers. Paul shares this common bond with them in that he brought the gospel to Philippi. And last week we heard the amazing story about the Philippian jailer, a man who was tasked just to keep Paul in prison on his life. Earthquake happens. Prison walls fall down. Chains come undone. Paul has every opportunity to escape. He does not take it. And he stops the Philippian jailer from taking his own life, who is thinking, I'd rather kill myself than fall into the hands of my superiors because my job uh, has failed. Paul reminds him it hasn't. I'm still here. We're all here. We're good. And then the jailer converts to Christianity, knowing the grace of God given to him in that moment. And not only that, his family, and then thus is birthed the Philippian church that's continued to support Paul through gifts and people and finances in a number of different ways, and ever since, continue to face steadfastness in prison. So Paul then sees this, sees this opportunity and says, in my memory of you, I thank God. His joy goes upward. You see, uh, verse 6, we're going to read specifically just what he's thanking God for as he's remembering this incident. Read with me in verse 6. Paul's joy will go upward now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. In here is a truth. This verse is worth underlining twice, maybe even three times. Uh, that every Christian grows. God has promised us that every Christian, everyone that is his, will grow. And Paul knows that the obedience that the Philippian church has shown so far, many, many more stories, many more miracles, many more reasons to thank, that, uh, thank God will, will come forth. There will be more Christ-like Pauls running around. There will be more Philippian jailers finding conversion in the grace of God. And eventually, in the days to come, when Christ returns, there will be fully glorified saints, a whole host of people with testimonies. What a thing to be thankful for. This truth that God does not abandon people, that every Christian grows 
that God will complete his salvation in them is especially powerful, especially helpful for a man who's in prison alone. This is a man who has every reason to think that, I think my days are done. (laughs) I I think maybe God's going to move on and put his investment into someone else now. No. In fact, we'll learn later of God continuing to work in uh, this jail as we continue our series in Philippians But not only that, Paul knows that God does not look at his children and think they're no longer worth my investment. The days are done, their use is spent, time to move on. God is sovereign. And God is sovereign over every single one of our days. And he will not fail to work on each and every masterpiece that he started work on. I've have a number of different hobbies and and uh, and I'll pick up projects and then uh, they'll get you know maybe quarter way through and then I'll move on to something else. I don't know if it's a fault of my discipline or my personality, but thank the Lord that God is not the same way. When He starts something, He finishes it, and His finished work is a masterpiece. If you've ever felt that God has left you, if you ever felt that. Your time has come and gone. If you've ever felt that God has simply passed over your family, maybe the ones that you care about, listen to this. As long as you have breath, as long as you serve him and love him, as long as you even can say his name, God has a plan for your growth. God not only has a plan, but he has a strategy to still use you in some way to grow his kingdom. You are not a useless thing at any point in your Christian life, even if you've had your days and they've been good. There are still days to come if you have life to use you for God's kingdom. I think, I think it's not just important, but critical to pull this truth into our hearts and not only, know, not only that, but center not just our personal commitment, but even our corporate commitment on this truth, the gospel. That as long as the church doors are open, there's work to be done. God will still use us. But it must be centered on the gospel. Our joy depends on our ability to keep the main thing the main thing. Our joy also uh, is dependent on this. See, we're familiar of churches who drift over time, and and every church has the potential, no matter how great it is. Sometimes people will get caught up on good things, helpful things, fun things, attractive things, and churches will go full sail to center themselves, maybe not the first day that it's announced, but over time to adopt this. This is our culture, this is our identity, and they build themselves around these things, and over time, they, they lose sight of the gospel itself. What happens when this happens? Preferences for building, preferences for music, preferences for programs and preaching and so on and so forth take the lead. And that's what unites them initially. But eventually, it's what divides them. I think it's here why Paul goes out of his way to pray for all the Philippians. Not just the ones that have helped him, 
not just the ones who are in leadership or some form or fashion. He's praying for all because he is in continued hope for their unity. So that is where his joy flows outward to. Ultimately, for the proclamation of the death and the resurrection of their Savior amongst their neighbors in Philippi. Now, before we move on, I want to make one more final observation about this section of text. Listen carefully, because I think it's here where we sometimes confuse biblical joy for its counterfeit, uh, its cultural counterfeit even. If we're wary, I think it should be here. See, Paul, he doesn't hoard his joy. Not in one sense. There's no greed, there's no defensiveness. He's not trying to protect his joy. It is just welling up. And he's not concerned if there's a day that the spring will run dry at all. Maybe to put this a clearer way, uh, very rarely in Paul's letters do we see him ever give thanks for things. It's usually people. I think this is the backbone of Paul's spiritual uh, commitment to Christ. Paul thanks God for people, but not so much thing. Why? It's because joy has a direction, and it flows out from someone. Paul, um, Paul knows that joy is not centered on things, and even, even some things that are good and worth pursuing. Joy is held inward as joy that will die. Inward joy is what, unfortunately, is often what is most proclaimed in our day. And it, it bleeds into even our Christian works and so on and so forth. Uh, our, I think our society values things more than people, and so we just kind of adopt that. And with that, I've seen Christians fall head over heels into pursuit of material gain. Some preachers even, and I won't name names, are well known for promising God's material blessing, because that's where your joy will come from. And once God unleashes his favor, his blessing in your life, it just won't stop. But is that the message? Is that Paul's message? That's, that's inward joy for sure, but it's only temporary, which is why I think sometimes those ministries are temporary themselves. Joy has a pathway. And it, there's nothing wrong with wealth. There's nothing wrong with um, God giving you so that way you can give to others or anything like that. But if you feel, uh, if you view a wealth, if you view wealth as a pathway to joy, that joy will only end in yourself. Especially when you realize that that new iPhone, well, a year later you'll want the next. Or the new home will be better, cleaner, bigger, but then you're clamoring and complaining about things breaking down and so on and so forth. Material possessions are meant to pass away. And if we put our joy in them, then it too will go. Paul knows better. He sends his joy outward and upward where God's eternal people will be in eternal kingdom with the eternal Father. God has designed our hearts, and specifically true joy in this way. It is a pathway. Now, I think a lot of us at times um, get confused about this. And, and 
we get overexcited. And we even see that the initial flares of excitement and joy uh, are evidence that we're doing the right thing. But again, with material gain, it does fail. But the alternative that Paul lives uh, does raise some concerns, I think. Some people might look at what Paul's doing and say, but Ethan, this looks looks like self-neglect. Paul's kind of just like this religious robot. He's kind of clearing his mind of all passion. Uh, He's a hollow husk of a person who can't appreciate good food whenever he sees it. Um, Is that the case? This next section, I think, will clear up and answer that specifically. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. See, here we see that Paul is challenging us to cultivate joy that is bound to the body of Christ, not circumstance. It is right for me to feel this way, says Paul, about you all because I hold you in my heart. You all are partakers of me with grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. While it is true, I think, I think while it is true that Paul does, joy does flow outward and upward, it's wrong to say that Paul doesn't feel anything. You catch all of the language that he used in that passage. Feel this way. Holding you in my heart. Yearn for you all. And affection. This is not some sort of intellectual exercise that he's conducting because his prison cell's got nothing to really go off of. No, he has plenty of it already there in his heart. He's not a, a Jedi that's trying to free his mind of all attachments or a Vulcan that's logic only. And if I commit myself to any personal connection, then my mission is jeopardized. He's not some otherworldly mystic monk or a muted man of wisdom. He is a man who feels deeply. But why why does Paul get emotional? Some of you probably at least wondered and had this thought, um, or people know people definitely who have said something like this. uh, You know what? The more, more Christian that someone becomes, the less fun they are, the less caring, less excited they become. Why is that? When I waited tables, I had a coworker who I was once talking with about his time in church, and uh, he, he was not a believer himself and had since walked away. And he was like, you know what I found? So the church people are just too quiet. In fact, you get them out of church, and they're still quiet. I think uh, what he's observing is probably more so of cultural kind of white Christianity uh, rather than anything that the Bible recommends. But more than that, there is something that is telling about his impression. For some reason or other, in our cultural context, maybe not so much others, we, we don't show our joy outwardly very well. And if we do, we, we reserve it for just other Christians that think like us. But when we get around other Christians, do they, are they familiar with our testimony? Not just how we're saved, though great as a precious story as that is, but also just like how God's been providing for us and how much joy we feel towards God. Do they get that window out of you? I look at my own life and think, man, sometimes I'm just trying to get from point A to point B, and then that's my priority. But not for Paul, and I don't think really that's for the case for the Philippian church. Where is our visible joy in today's age? But I want to go back to my question. 
Why does it matter that Paul gets emotional? Paul is a prime example of what a mature Christian is. He's probably one of the most prime examples that we have in this period of history. He is extensively studied in all of Scripture, even before his conversion. Not only that, he's led missionary journey after missionary journey and planted all sorts of churches. This guy's got the resume. Where has all of this led him? What has this gotten him? He's cold, he's personal, he's indifferent. No, not here. He's, he's grumpy and stuck up. I don't see it. Uh, he's selective in his friendships. Not a chance. No, this is a man that is alive with fire. This is a man who is so overtaken by his joy that it is just going out of his prison cell at every chance. A letter's heading out, hey, let people know that I'm good and that they should be good too. Paul deeply, deeply feels this love and affection, and it's an affection that comes from Christ. If you're on the fence about fully following Christ because you're, you're afraid of what will happen to you, what kind of person you'll become, if you have a neighbor or a friend or a coworker who's just kind of, that's why I'm not bought in yet. I, I don't know the kind of person that I'll get sucked into being. Look at Paul. Who wouldn't want to have the joy that he feels? And this is not just some abstract concept that Paul's defined himself. This is a joy that comes from Scripture. It comes from exercise of God's Word. And not only that, it comes from just knowing and being with God's people. I'm a Christian, and I want more of that. And, and I hope that in our life, that we echo that same sort of joy in front of those who, who are on the fence and wondering, I just don't know. I still want to have fun. You will. You will, definitely. Now, you might be listening to think, all right then, but could Paul simply just kind of be a little off his rocker? Solitary confinement can do that to you, right? Uh, maybe he's like a, a holy fool and he's got to this point now where he's kind of so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. Is that the case? Is Paul saying, well, something I found that's pretty interesting in my studies at seminary, we read Christians and non-Christians. We read people of all different perspectives, atheists and believers. And uh, do you know who... who what two figures among atheist scholars that are most respected, most revered, and called first-rate philosophers of their age that could stand with the best of the Romans of the day? John the disciple and Paul. Paul is highly respected as a heavyweight intellectual. This man is not sane. He has found gold, and he is going after it. As crazy as it may seem in the circumstance of his, uh, of his condition. So next to these words about his emotion, Paul actually describes kind of one other thing that I would like us to note. Paul sees his brothers and sisters in Philippi as partakers with him in grace. Cool. Don't know exactly what that means, though. Let's unpack that. Partakers in the appointment to suffer in this context, but partakers also just in being in the body of Christ together. So what is this grace? Is it the ability to believe God? Yes. Or is it more so forgiveness of sin? Oh, that, that too, 
absolutely. This, but more specifically, I think what Paul's referring to here is that they are partakers in the grace of knowing Christ himself. This is not just the good parts of Christ's life, the joy that you feel uh, in moments where it's easy, but also that sort of strange joy that you find in the midst of trial and tribulation. One of my favorite verses in this book is in chapter 3, verse 10. I'll read it for us. Uh, um, Paul says here, uh, a personal plea of his, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. This is a part of picking up one's cross and following him. Paul brings up this notion of grace and speaks of it as grace. It's an honor. It's a privilege. And then speaks of the Philippians as also sharing in them as well. And it's true. Yes, they did share. Many of them, too, were facing persecution and facing jail as well. Not only that, um, Paul sees them and knows we are like, we are in this together. We are bound to the body of Christ and suffering for his name. When people go through something that's rough, they form a closeness, they form a deeper devotion that can sometimes go even deeper than loves of spouses and so on and so forth. Uh, I think of stories of people in the Holocaust who suffer together or in POW camps feeling oddly at the end of their life still closer to those that they shared a prison cell with than those they shared a bed with in marriage. Paul is speaking of this deep union, not just with the Philippians, but the whole entire global body of Christ, not uh, even of that day, but those to come, us. Paul sees us bound together in Christ, a man who himself suffered for everyone. But death, following Christ to death, sounds awfully grim. And I think if you're reading scripture well, you recognize the reality at play. But Paul, in this context, even in the face of death, has joy. It does, he does not waver in the face of grim circumstances, and neither does his joy. So, in being bound to the body of Christ, I think that we actually run into a secret of suffering. This is the fellowship of, of the martyrs. Whenever we suffer for Christ's name, we come to personally know Christ and know his love on an even deeper level. We find uh, our situation has a momentary affliction compared to the eternal joy that we will continue to have, and that spurs on our temporary, our present joy. When I was, uh, when I was young, uh, and some of you probably are looking at me thinking, you, you still are, and I know that my uh, youth think that I'm super old because I was even born before the 2000s. Uh, regardless, when I was young, I read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs. You may be familiar. Uh, there's also a kind of a more um, millennial version of it called uh, uh, DC Talks, Jesus Freaks. Several volumes that recounted story after story of people who faced persecution in Christian history. And many of them, the majority of them, to the point of death. 
I remember page after page, story after story, reading of people like Jim Elliott in the movie End of the Spear was made after. And and, and seeing this, I found a common theme that I think that Paul is absolutely in the reality of right now. This is that in these darkest moments, God gives us what we need to get through. And it's not just that he gives us something abstract. He actually gives us a love for those people who put us there. Paul deeply loves the Roman guard. In fact, they soon will be converting themselves, as we learn in Philippians. But also, each of these martyrs in history also seem to be hit with a, a moment where they, they testify something that just sounds a little crazy. Something as crazy and absurd, at least at first glance, as Jesus' words, Father, forgive them while hanging on a cross. Forgive them, they know not what they do. Stories like these will fill the kingdom, and it, it's my prayer that we come to know of such love in whatever circumstance that we face. You might say, though, hold up, I'm nowhere close to where Paul's at. In fact, uh, I'm not even where at all close on the radar. Uh, And I don't even understand half of, of how I could get there, especially feeling what I'm feeling right now, going through what I'm going through. And I, I, maybe even I've been a Christian for a while, but it's been a hard few past months or years even. I think our next point will speak to that and give that concern. It's due hope. Uh, so far, we've talked about cultivating joy that runs upward and outward, not inward, and, and, and a joy that is specifically bound to the body of Christ, not tied to circumstance. For our third point and final, uh, Paul, I think, challenges us with these verses to cultivate joy that increasingly bears fruit. Read with me in verses 9 and 11 now. And it's my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve of what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. What a prayer. I can't wait to pray like that someday. Paul closes his introductory thanksgiving with a prayer for the Philippian church. Specifically that the good work already begun will continue to grow in love. He first asks God that their love abound more and more. Great, I'm on board. What does that mean? Again, let's unpack this. Well, given all that he said, it would make sense that Paul is speaking of what he just mentioned about, that affection of Christ. And, what he, uh, and not only that, this is Paul saying, as I feel the affection of Christ, so may you. This is a mentee to a mentor, mentor to mentee. And he's saying, may you feel as I feel, so you can do as I do. It is not that the Philippian church hasn't already begun to demonstrate love or evidence themselves as being loving. In fact, they're one of the most positively spoken churches in the Bible. But Paul is simply asking for more, knowing that the gospel will continue to rise up in abundance as they grow in love. 
Yes, they had supported him already, but Paul is dreaming of what could be. And I think that even of himself is, is, is one light uh, for his prison cell. An increase of faithfulness and an increase of fruit. And as we continue reading here, I think we get two more things that kind of reinforce just the type of what kind of love this is. It's far more than just a feeling or kind-heartedness to be sweet people. One, I think Paul starts painting a vision for the Philippians with growing and abounding love, but qualifies it, says, but you're going to have knowledge and discernment. This means that you're going to know those appropriate moments when it's right to act, right to speak, right to show God's love. This implies that it's not just a sweet thought. If you need knowledge and discernment to apply it, it probably means that you're meant to apply it. This is love wisely applied. I think secondly, too, Paul's own example confirms that this is more than just a feeling because Paul is where? In a prison cell, put there by people who disagreed with him, implying that he did something to be disagreed with. In fact, he publicly continued to go to the same places, in, the same, in this case Jerusalem, uh, to testify to the gospel of Christ. People got angry. People put him in prison. But people heard. That means that he actively demonstrated his love and just didn't think sweet thoughts about those in Jerusalem. Paul himself carried it through and chose in the wisdom of God that it was time to speak. He himself in this prison cell regrets nothing. Uh, Let's look at verse 10. I think verse 10 wraps up the purpose statement of this prayer. Why abound in love and abound in more and more of it? Paul is saying that the good work that God does in the moment of salvation plants love in our hearts so that we grow in love. And why? So that we grow into wisdom and maturity. This is so that we can increasingly make the right decisions. What kind of decisions are we talking about? I'm going to share with you my life first. You don't have to turn there. I'll just jump right in. But Romans 12, 1 through 12. Uh, I memorized it in the NIV, and now we have the ESV, and that's what we use. Um, But um, it's one of these points where Paul is kind of returning, I think, to the same vein of thought about what Christian maturity is. And here he talks about maturity to discern God's will. Something that I'd love to know what God's will is for me in every moment of the day. Paul says in Romans 12, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, and I think he means sisters too, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2 Do not be conformed to this world, which, uh, do not be conformed to this world but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. In Romans, it's the transformation of the mind. In our passage in Philippians, it was the abounding love of the heart. Uh, I think Paul, again, same vein of thought. If we put them together, we see that God's plan for my spiritual growth, for your spiritual growth, is even through suffering, is one where you will grow to know the heart of God, to feel his affection for the people. 
And not only that, to know his desires for your life. Forget palm readers. Forget fortune tellers. Forget horoscopes and all of that. Or even the superpowers of like superheroes that can know the future and see what's coming in advance. This is something even far greater than that. And it's actually real. You mean to tell me that God intends to show believers his heart and where they fit in? You mean to tell me that we get this sort of access to God? You mean to tell me that we become wiser as we hang in there and fight the good fight? I'm sure some of the women in the room are thinking, sign my husband up. This, this is what God promises to all. This is what Paul prays for, that we all continue to grow and to know this joy, but to be able to wisely send it out and to send it back up to God. This is a joy that increasingly gets better and better and better at bearing fruit. Let's go further in our passage. Paul explains that we will become pure and blameless in love. Here, I don't think he means that uh, through the Christian life, eventually our sins are forgiven, that we, our records are eventually cleaned. I think, I think by context, and some translations have even gone this way, they say something about uh, growing in honesty, uh, not offending, not being a stumbling block. As we become a Christian, we do get better at that. I think of Christians that I know even now who are like, hey, am I praying right? Am I doing the right thing? Do I, should I say this or not? And first off, praise God that you're even concerned and that you're here. And that's the most important thing. But secondly, don't worry. You'll get better. You'll get the hang of it. You'll feel the depths and riches of God's grace more and more as you stay here. But any matter, God's people will be changed. And again, every Christian grows. And we are made perfect for his return. And Paul lays down this vision that we actually participate in the good things until that day comes. We don't wait to be changed at the return. We don't live evil lives and live evil ways. And then because we signed up, you know, at some point in our life to, you know, become a Christian, and then, then uh, Jesus comes back and then boom, we're like God and we're holy. That's not the way the Christian life is meant to. And you'll never feel the joy of the Lord if that's what you think it's about. Again, this is a joy that increasingly bears good fruit. It's the way God's designed it. When I think of what I'll be like in 20 years, 30 years, it's hard for me to wrap my mind around what I will look like. I'm not talking about, you know, whether I'll have a beard as long as Brandon's. Uh, <laughs> Or if I'll still have hair, although I, I do wonder about that. Um, I'm thinking about the kind of person that I would like to be around. What kind of friend I'll be? What, what kind of neighbor I'll be? Or um, what kind of person I would be like to run into on vacation and meet for a few days? Will, the, will those people who interact with that Ethan know that I've been with God, that I've lived a life with God, that I have the joy of the Lord? I, I pray it's so. And, I, and I, I ask the same question to you. Where do you see yourself? Is joy a part of that journey? 
Oh, him. He takes care of people. He's so good to me. Or her. She taught me so much. She, she loves her family, and I just want to be like her. Will they say those things of you? You see, Paul closes his prayer, and, and he asks that God will fill them with the fruit of righteousness. I take this to mean testimony after testimony after testimony of God's faithfulness in their life lived through them. In fact, he says that this is uh, the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, not of their own power. Each of us is a masterpiece that God is working on. There's actually this really neat art form in Japan. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but I'm a big fan. Kintsugi. They take these priceless vessels, uh, vases, cups, plates, uh, that have been broken that are now rendered useless. What they do is they piece them back together, and the parts where they need to join them, they fill and inlay gold and platinum, silver, other sorts of precious metals, returning that once priceless item, centuries and centuries old, to use again, and not only that, but to even greater value, and it's done in a way that's a lot better than I could probably ever do, so it looks great too. That's the kind of masterpiece that God's working on when he's working on us. We start off broken. Images of God, but broken ones. And God pieces us back together, and over time, he inlays new testimony after new testimony. So that when we stand before others, they see our joy, and they see what God has done, and they want more of it. When we get to heaven, and that work is complete and on display, God is glorified. We will be an amazing living museum of God's faithfulness. So, I think we can have one of two responses to, I think, what Paul's laying down in Scripture today. And as I close, I want us to think about this. See, we can either step in stride with God in his work, cultivating this joy, enjoying it along the way, no matter what comes, or we can resist the inevitable, kicking and screaming, live in rebellion, lack true sight of the joy that God has for us. Chasing counterfeit joy on bookshelves and TV and wherever else. Which one will you choose? What will you do today and further on this week? Who will see Christ's joy through you? Let us start today and heed Paul's example. And I pray that we do cultivate joy that is upward and outward, but never inward. One that is bound by the body of Christ, not circumstance, and one that increasingly bears fruit. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I, I think of what kind of masterpieces we might become. Only having just glimpses of it through people that are further in the walk ahead of me, knowing their stories of faithfulness, I pray, Lord, that at least, even if it's from a selfish place in my heart, Lord, that, that you continue that work in me. I pray, too, that you also continue that work in your church here so that we all may sing and praise you in the kingdom come, but also sing and praise you in the kingdom now. With that, Lord, we love you. Amen.